very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance Peter Atwater, uh, author of The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. Peter, so glad to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jack. Very happy to be here. Uh, Pleasure's all mine. So Peter, you're known as a pioneer in the field of behavioral economics and finance, so focusing a lot on psychology. So I just want to ask you, as you've transitioned from a somewhat nasty bear market into what appears could be you know, a new bull market, and we're you know, a hair's breadth away from all-time highs on, on the U.S. stock market, at least, how would you characterize the, the psychology of the market right now as we record in uh, late, uh, late July? So the psychology is very good right now. Um, you know, I think everybody is now looking past the, the banking crisis from the spring. Uh, certainly, things have calmed down on the commodity front and the inflation front. Uh, folks are now predicting a, a soft landing if there's a recession at all. Um, you know, I think that there's really a blue skies ahead of us uh, phenomenon. And certainly, you see that in terms of what's happened with AI stocks and the interest that everybody has in, in those very futuristic uh, technologies. Um, yeah, the, the coast looks clear, which as a as a researcher, always makes the hair on the back of my neck stand out because it's it's something that I I look with more caution than I do the the enthusiasm of the crowd. And I know a lot in finance, not behavioral finance, but traditional uh, sort of financial uh, studies. A lot like to think of investors and uh, economic participants as rational, and behavioral finance really cracks that that theory you know, wide open. Uh, could you speak about how the sentiment of investors has changed as the fortunes uh, uh, have changed in in the market? Uh, so, I, you know, people were were quite bearish and gloomy in October, whereas now that the stock market is is high again, everyone is is very excited. Yeah, I, I don't think of investors as being rational or irrational. I think all investment decisions have to be rationalized. That we have to. In order to make an investment decision, you have to imagine the future in some state. And what we fail to appreciate is that our imagination of the future mirrors how we feel. And so what you end up with is this equilibrium between how we feel, the stories we tell, and then our investment decisions. And and why that matters is, as you point out, back in October, people were very pessimistic. Confidence was very low. Folks felt very uncertain. Um, The stories that went along with it were glaring in terms of stagflation, both a slowdown and and high inflation. And so there was this natural tendency to sell. And and, um, I I can remember sort of writing about just the, the, the bubble in bearishness that existed, that there was just this really bleak outlook on on what was ahead. What we fail to appreciate as investors is that there's a there's only so low that our mood can go before it marks the bottom. And I think that was an example where you had this collective pessimism saturating the market. And those ironically turn out to be good buying points as opposed to selling points. Um, and I think we, what we're seeing now is that, you know, certainly with, with AI stocks and, and the like, uh, sort of the opposite end of that confidence spectrum. Hmm. In that people are getting very bullish on AI names and yeah, I mean, how deep into Optim- optimism, extreme optimism. Do you think it is in the, in the market now? If we could characterize it, you know, October as a perhaps a bubble in bearishness. There's not that much more bearish the market can get. How bullish is the market now? Uh, and you know, particularly, let's talk about AI stocks. Yeah, I, I think the market is very bullish in AI stocks. Um, you see that in terms of the the valuations and the certainly the moves in in big tech and now the the market cap weightings of those within the indices. Those that's those are all objective measures of just how strong sentiment is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always amused when they start to talk about the value of companies relative to all other companies or to the GDP of other countries. And so those, those comparisons have come out of the woodwork. Um, you're also seeing corporate leaders feeling compelled to talk about AI in their earnings calls that it's no longer a subject that you can ignore. The cool kids want to talk about it. Therefore, it's a 
topic of all conversation among among businesses. And and so that also feeds into the excitement. Um, you know, I, I think we've seen some sort of a peak or approaching some sort of a peak as far as AI goes. The question always is uh, sort of by comparison to crypto, is this 2017 or 2022? You know, what's the what's the degree of mania? Right. So uh, 2017 and in 2022, there's a lot of mania in crypto and your know, valuations have come down a lot from there. I think the 2017 correction was a little bit more extreme than the 2022 correction. So uh, how, how would you compare that to now? And, and like in the world of traditional finance, for example, how would you compare this AI uh, bullishness relative to the dot-com excitement in the late 90s, which obviously was based on a very real uh, uh, development, but the valuations got, got quite extreme. People were valuing things on, on eyeballs. And also just to sort of put a counterpoint of you can look at 1998, for example, and you know, not that I was uh, you know, paying attention to the market then. There was a lot of excitement in the market, but it, it, it got so much more extreme. And it's very hard to see, uh, to, to call a top in, in bullishness, uh, for, for example. You know, things can always get, the bubble can always get bigger. Not that I'm calling stocks bubble now, but. No, the, the bubbles can always get bigger. The panics can always get worse. It, it, to me, it's a, it's a question of degree. And, and you have companies like NVIDIA that are trading at, you know, 45 times, you know, just these 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 astronomical relative valuations. You also have that in in the the mega cap stocks, and and in that way, I think the the magnificent seven or the seven wonders of the world, whatever you want to call them, um, there are some interesting parallels back to the dot com with the the four horsemen and the the this this narrow group. And we've seen this before with the Fang stocks a couple of years ago. So, so we the crowd becomes fixated on a on a small group and and will push them to the point of exhaustion. And the question always is where where is that? And one of the things that's so interesting today with these mega caps is that with high and with high employment, you have four hundred one ks and IRAs naturally feeding this. These these companies' valuations. I think I think of it almost as a automatic cat feeder. That that for every dollar that goes in, you know, twenty five cents, thirty cents is going into those magnificent seven. So so we have to remember that that's propelling um, the value, and and valuations become they're both cause and effect. They're they're something that signal that the crowd is interested, and therefore the crowd becomes more interested. But again, I, I, you know, is this is this 1998 versus 2000? You know, I, I think for investors, that difference over a long period of time doesn't matter. I think that the reality is we're approaching the, you know, the, the goal line, and you know, are we on the ten yard line, the five yard line? It doesn't really matter. I mean, there's there's a lot of other field behind this that that eventually you'll be able to play. There's. A lot of people in, in my business, so financial media, particularly on, on YouTube, folks are pointing out how they made videos in January of this year that were saying, you know, you're going to lose money in stocks, blah, 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 because the sentiment was so bearish. And uh, now that the market's up, they're saying this is how you can make money in stocks. And so you know, people are kind of chasing the narrative. Do you think uh, it's just in human nature that the crowd will always, in aggregate, be most bullish at the top and most pessimistic at the bottom, and there's nothing really that can can change that, you know, over over decades. No, I don't think anything changes it. I mean, we we don't learn. Um, we experience this over and over, and I think it's interesting that you talk about all of these videos, the proliferation of videos, because those to me are also a very useful sentiment metric. And you know what is it that that people are filling TikTok videos with or YouTube videos, because we like to follow things that are relevant and resonate with us. And and I always think that what we choose to watch is a really unappreciated measure of our own mood. That that we're not going to sit there and listen if we're extremely confident. We're not going to listen to a, a video that's incredibly pessimistic. It's like paying attention to the guy with a sign on the street that says the world is coming to an end. We're going to laugh at those folks. And so we need we as investors need to appreciate that what we're watching, what 
what feels right to us is nothing more than a mirror of how we ourselves feel. And, and that changes over time. And when I see, as you talk about, you know, back in December, I mean, remember, too, that that was a time when nobody thought Elon Musk could do anything right. I mean, it was a real comeuppance for him. And, and I think that there may be no individual whose ebbs and flows mirror investor sentiment today like Elon Musk. We love him at the top. We revile him at the bottom. And he's, he's somebody who has been at this intersection of all of the, the very exciting technology phenomenon in this cycle, EVs, solar, space, AI, crypto. I mean, he, he's sort of the Kevin Bacon of, of everything that we love. And so you can use him as, a, as your own indicator of how the crowd feels. Do we, are we you know, celebrating him or are we, we really condemning him? And today he's, he seems to be in you know, very good form. People seem to be really appreciative of all that he's doing. Um, you know, Tesla's up. His you know, SpaceX valuations are way up. I mean, you can, you can see this in, in sort of the, the halo effect of Elon Musk. Yes, and the ultimate example of that for me was in November or December when you know people I followed on Twitter were talking about how t- Twitter was going to crash and no one was going to use Twitter. But then the next day, I would see them posting on Twitter, yeah. and I knew that they would be wrong. Yeah, I just I just had a feeling. So uh, I want to ask you about valuations based on the discount rate. This theory, uh, this model that you know stocks, all assets valued on how much money they can return to you in the future, and those should be. Uh, valued based upon what you can get for a risk-free asset, such as a treasury, a ten-year treasury, for example. So, you know, when interest rates were at zero, it made a lot of sense to invest in you know, unprofitable technology stocks where all the all the gravy was kind of well in the future. But when interest rates, if they went to five percent, it would be Armageddon for those type of stocks, and it was Armageddon last year. But it no longer is, and actually, we're seeing those growth stocks grow really well. So, is this whole of uh, technology stocks and growth stocks? do well with low interest rates and they don't do well with high interest rates. Is that just a nice story or do you think there's something there? So I teach a class on financial economics where we go through all of the the objective calculations and it's one of the most difficult classes for me to teach because I can do the math all day long, um, but I don't really believe it. I don't believe that the crowd, when the crowd behaves, is at all capable or interested in that level of complexity. I I believe fundamentally that crowds can only use system one thinking, our simplest, laziest thoughts. And so while there may be groups of investors who rely very heavily on free cash flows and discounted values, the crowd isn't really gonna move one way or the other based on those changes. What what you see, though, is those then become useful stories that the crowd will use to support their positions. So to your you know to your point, yeah, low interest rates great for everything, high interest rates bad for everything, and that's you know that's a very common thing that I see where we will come up with the simplest, most obvious connections in order to justify our positions. Um, What we forget though, and and I think this was something that was really overlooked back in early 2021, was that you had this peaking in sentiment in both stocks and bonds at the same time. You had trillions of dollars of negative yielding debt at the same time we were racing into SPACs and NFTs. And so investors' supposedly well-diversified portfolios weren't diversified at all when it came in terms of sentiment. And so what we saw in 2022 was a a concurrent drop in sentiment in both stocks and bonds whose stories then fed upon itself. So the higher rates went, the worse stocks got, the less interested people had in in, in owning bonds, which then fed into this, this cycle of, of pessimism that was reinforcing both behaviorally and, and in terms of the narratives. 
Yeah, that, that makes sense. So moving on to the economy, not just markets, uh, a recession in 2023, I think in 2022 was widely anticipated by many in the market. I, I always like to say that I think the Bloomberg had a recession odds probability calculated and was at 99% that we would have a recession in the US. Obviously, the US economy has proven much more resilient. And so I understand how I can see how in financial markets, if everyone's bearish, there's no one left to sell. So that it'll be upward pressure on the market. Whereas if everyone's bullish, there's no one left to buy. So it will be you know downward pressure or less bullish pressure on the market. But in for an economy, is there the reverse thing where if everyone is uh, pessimistic, they're not going to buy things, they're not going to borrow money, they're not going to you know go on that trip, that vacation, and it actually can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and also, depending on your answer on that, what do you think of the fact that so many were pessimistic on the economy uh, last year and those those fears have been proven to you know not be true, at least so far? Yeah, so when it comes to recessions, we're really poor at predicting them and experiencing them. You know, we will say that the recession is going to be horrible ahead when we're in the midst of it. And I, I'm a big believer that the best indicator of a recession ahead is the fearlessness with which we approach a recession. So if nobody believes a recession is coming, I can assure you that a recession is coming and it's likely to be far deeper than we imagine. Why? Because our behaviors in that moment are setting it up. We're, we're doing things with feelings of invincibility where we're not paying a lot of attention. We're taking you know, bigger risks in more things. And, and so that's, that's what sets up the recession. And to your point, back in October, particularly you know, late summer, everybody was convinced the recession was coming. And it's like, no, no, no. If, if, if everyone believes it's coming, it's not going to. It's a weird Godot you know, phenomenon where the, we, we routinely get this wrong. Um, and so I wasn't at all surprised that we were, we were going to come out of it far better than people imagine because we were already living it in terms of sentiment. I think, I think Kyla Scanlon had it perfectly described when she called it a vibe session. We, we were living it as if it were real. Now, in fairness, part pieces of it were real in terms of the, in, the inflation impact and their prices at the pump really do a number on how we feel. Yeah. And so there are two arguments about inflation. One is that it inflation sort of is contains the seeds of deflation and a recession because if everything goes up in price, you, you consumers' dollars are just worth less, so they're going to spend less. But then there's the other side of the coin, what I think is called the uh, money illusion, where your things cost more, uh, so you're going to you know, ask more for for wages, and you're going to earn more, and then you're going to spend more, you're going to borrow more, and then so inflation is inflationary, and that it can be a, a psychology of, of inflation where. Uh, uh, expectations of inflation get embedded, and I know the, the Federal Reserve is definitely a believer in, the, in that latter theory. Where do you, which theory do you think is is more accurate, or do they both have some truth? Well, I think in in what we experienced last year, I, I, to me that was just a, a wonderful real time example of the bullwhip effect, where we had a bunch of decisions made in 2020 where no one was thinking about the future. And so what we experienced were the unintended consequences of everybody panicking at once in responding in ways that were intensely inflationary. And so we, we fueled that. And then you threw on the, the war in, in Ukraine, and that just set off another piece. I, I think the Fed is still fighting the, the, the 1980s war. Um, you know, they are terrified of, of inflation becoming a, embedded in the psychology. And, and, I, and I think in, in some ways that's good and in other ways it's bad. Uh, to me, the, the, the pernicious aspect of, of inflation is, is its psychological con contribution to our feelings of uncertainty and powerlessness. With scarcity comes a feeling that we're being imprisoned by it. And what's so interesting about this cycle is we were really not, there were not the, the shortages 
behind it that we were looking to from the 1980s. I mean, the United States particularly is, a, is far more energy independent than it used to be. And, you know, we're in terms of agricultural commodities and, and energy commodities, we're, we're in, in far better shape than the, than the crowd gave us credit for. Having said that, I think one of the things that is unappreciated today is that we, we live in a marked-to-market economy. The speed at which sentiment in the markets translates into prices and then into the economy is faster than ever before. And you really saw that when Russia invaded Ukraine and the the speed at which the commodities market price changes were hitting us at the pump. And so I think investors need to appreciate that their own behavior is now creating a a dramatic follow-on effect in the real economy. And this proliferation of ETFs enables us to bet high or low in everything. Yeah, that's such a great point about oil. At the time when the price of oil spiked there, I and I think this mainstream view interpreted it as a legitimate uh, supply crisis of all these oils a barrel have been taken off the market. Whereas I think now in retrospect, it's seen that it was just trading, oil was trading at a, uh, a geopolitical premium. In other words, it was speculators who were pushing the market up because everything has become so so financialized. Uh, Peter, I now want to ask you about your book, The, the Confidence Map. So uh, what motivated you to write this book? And also, what is The Confidence Map? Sure. So I wrote this book as a result of years of teaching and researching confidence. And I, and I think that um, confidence is one of those words that we overuse and at the same time have no idea what we're talking about when we use the word. Um, others have suggested it's like pornography. We just know it when we see it, but we, we, we struggle to define it. And in teaching, I had to figure out what it really is and why does it matter so much to the choices that we make. And so I spent a lot of time looking at different variables and elements of confidence and finally settled on two our feelings of certainty, the degree to which things are predictable ahead, and our feelings of control. You know, do I feel prepared? Have I rehearsed, practiced? You know, do I have the skills to navigate this future that I imagine? And so the confidence map is really about the connections between our feelings of certainty and control and the choices we make, from how we think to our preferences, to the stories we tell, you, if you look at them objectively, they all tie to our degrees of certainty and control in our lives. You know, one of the things we don't we don't think about is confidence. We say you know none, some, too much that it comes in in three sizes. That's not really useful or accurate. I think it's helpful to think about the opposite of confidence as being vulnerability. That when we don't have confidence, we somehow feel that things are uncertain and powerless. And that then helps to inform the kinds of choices that we make during a pandemic, during a, a crisis, because their vulnerability creates an intense amount of, of impulsiveness and emotion because we've got, a, we've got a problem that must be solved now. And so the confidence map is really all about how certainty and control impact what we do, whether it's in the markets, in the corporate space, or in our own lives. And what would you say is the relationship between certainty and control? If someone has more control about something, I guess rationally they would have a little bit more certainty, but is, do you find that to be the case? Or do you find that actually true experts are much less certain than amateurs? So we tend to look at them as a buy one, get one free, that if I have certainty, I have control. If I have control, I have certainty. Um, that's not at all the case. And, and remarkably, we spend an awful lot of our lives having one, but not both. So let me offer some, some examples. So environments of, of certainty, but no control would be the passenger seat on an airplane or in the back of a cab, um, when we go over a bridge, uh, when we're on an elevator. We regularly experience these environments where 
we hope we have intense certainty, but we actually have absolutely no control. And what's interesting about those environments is that they can go from being very calm to being chaotic in an instant, add turbulence to a flight, and suddenly it feels like we're being imprisoned. In fact, prisons are an environment of intense certainty and, and powerlessness, or at least certainly that's what the prison staff would hope for. So, so that's an environment where we need to be really cognizant of the fact that we have one but not both. So let's go to the opposite, which is an environment where we have control but no certainty. You could think of a rock climber who's halfway up a hill, who's holding on. They've got complete control, but the outcome is to be determined. It's what happens when we pull the lever on a, a, a slot machine or we hit send, sending out a resume. What investors don't appreciate is that defines every financial decision we make from borrowing money, lending money, investing. Those are made in an environment where we have control, but no certainty. We have to imagine what's ahead. And, and I think anytime we're talking about the future, we, must, we need to remember that it's, it's an imagination. We're, we're making it up. The, the future is an inherently unknown. What we miss is that our imagination of the future is entirely a function of how we feel. If I'm not confident that I will be successful, I'm now imagining a very dark future ahead. And investors, as a result, are going to sell. If they're wildly optimistic about the future, they're going to buy. And we, we need to pause for a moment to, to remember that our imagination is a mirror. And that if we are too certain that things are going to be great or too certain things are going to be horrible, we're going to be wrong. We need to be more open to the other possible outcomes and, and certainly size our positions and trade our investment portfolios accordingly. Anytime you are certain of what's going to happen, you are really setting yourself up for failure. A lot of investors, individual investors who are tr you know, trading and investing on their own account, you say they, in reality, they have a lot of control. They can enter, exit any position, but not a lot of certainty. So that, if we can put a chart of this map up, is what you call a launch pad. What are the characteristics of a launch pad? And what is the proper way to act in a launch pad setting? And what is the wrong way to act? So I think when you're in the launch pad, one of the things you need to do is to assign probabilities to the outcome. What do you think the likelihood is of success and failure are. And to pause any time those percentages get very high in either direction. We routinely accept the idea of overconfidence, that if I'm 100% sure things are going to be great ahead, chances are I'm overconfident. We are equally prone to what I call underconfidence, where we can be too pessimistic of the future. If you go back and look at our behaviors and what we were saying and thinking in March of 2020, I'd argue we were woefully underconfident. Now, you would say, but it was a pandemic. We had no idea. So that's, that's always the case when we're underconfident. We can come up with all of these reasons why the end of the world is approaching. Can I draw a point of distinction, with which, which is with the benefit of hindsight, investors and everyone was obviously incredibly underconfident in that, uh, you know, I mean, stocks were trading at very cheap discounts relative to what they would earn in 2021. I mean, the, the price of oil went, went negative in, in April and then it went to, uh, uh, you know, over, over $100, $120. Uh, but if we were to time travel back into that moment without the benefit of hindsight, do you still think that the range of outcomes that were anticipated by the market that would cause the VIX to be at 80, that would cause you know, the S&P 500 to, to sell off, uh, but I think, below, below 3,000, was, was it still underconfident under based on, I guess, not the realized values, but the anticipated uh, values? Absolutely. I, there's a YouTube video that folks can look up. I did a, a webinar for William & Mary talking about that things were going to get better. Um, and, and I'm sure anybody who watched it in real time was laughing. You know, this, this crazy man who's, you know, optimistic in the face of a hurricane. 
And the reason I was so optimistic was people were panicking. And I, I think panic is God's way of telling us that the worst is behind us, but we don't appreciate it. And, and so anytime you see panic, you need to remember that that is an over-extrapolation of the uncertainty and powerlessness that we feel. Does that mean the low is going to be tomorrow? No, but it means we're rapidly approaching a low. Panics are exhausting and they ultimately end very, very quickly. So if I'm an investor, it, it, and as we've seen, it didn't matter whether you, you bought in March, April, May, June of 2020, you, you are going to be successful. You don't have to time this to the moment. But you can appreciate and need to appreciate that, that panic is something that only occurs in a crowd when sentiment is extremely low. Many is the other side. So these are things that you can use as objective measures that in the moment feel incredibly emotional. And I, I think it's always useful to say, okay, the crowd is panicking. Rather than being afraid, I want to be preparing for a reversal whenever that comes because it's coming soon. Sorry to interrupt. Wanted to let you know about BlockWorks upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September, 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are gonna be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 30% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE30. That's GUIDANCE30. Thanks, let's get back to the episode. And I, I guess because the market is uncertain, your uh, view should be, you know, negative 5%, plus 5%, a pretty narrow view. So when the market's expectations vary widely from that view, you bet on going the other way. I do. I do. And I, and I, and I look at it, you know, behaviorally, what are people doing that say to me that they're panicking? And we could see panic in March of 2020 in the private sector, in the public sector, in the markets, in you know the medical community. Everyone was panicking at once. There was nobody left not to panic. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. So, uh, what? So, so are all investors in the launch pad where they have a lot of control but no certainty, or they should have no certainty, or are there any who are in the other three boxes? So indic what's interesting is once we make the choice, we immediately move into the passenger seat where we have, again, we hope certainty, but we have no control of the outcome. This is particularly true for passive investors where they are counting on the markets themselves to provide the certainty. And the certainty is, you know, that that's the promise is that markets always eventually go up. And that's a, that's a belief that passive investors and the, the proponents of passive investing are resting all of their stock in, that amid the twists and turns, the outcome will always be positive. Um, and that's no different than people on an airplane who are counting on all of the data that says this airplane is safe and that you know, 99.99999% of the time, we will land at the airport on the other side. That degree of certainty is itself something we need as investors to be careful about. Because when we all believe that to be true, funny things happen. We, we can overbelieve the story. And we saw this in real estate in 2007. You know, home prices only go up was the, the mantra, and then people were speculating wildly on that behavior. So we need to listen to what's the, what's the promise, that very simple truth that everybody is, is committing to and being careful to fact check it. Is this, is, this really, is this really the case? 
Yeah, so the, the belief that the stock market only goes up is, is obviously not true. And if people believe that, believe that, that can be very dangerous because as soon as the stock market goes down, they can get, get worried and sell. But I think of passive investing, I think of it as trying to avoid a lot of the behavioral issues that, that we, we've been talking about. Of If you're individually you know, buying NVIDIA, you'd be shorting NVIDIA in, in October and you'd be buying it now uh, because that's based on, on how you feel. Someone would say, oh, I don't want to make that mistake. Instead, every two weeks when I get paid, I'm just going to you know, allocate to this, this Vanguard fund. And I, I, you know, I, mean, I think even professional investors, the track record in trying to, to beat the index uh, is not great, uh, at least in equities, for, for, for a lot of the reasons that, that you talk about. So do you, do you think that it's the type of thing where, uh, I mean, first of all, do you agree with my characterization that passive investing can try and get away from those behavioral fallacies? Because I mean, dollar cost averaging every two weeks and never selling, that, that is much better than you know listening to all financial media and getting super bullish and, in a manic way and then super bearish in a pessimistic way. Absolutely. I, it, it prevents you from, from meddling at precisely the wrong moments, which is when you will meddle. So I, I absolutely agree with you on that. If, if you don't have the discipline to, to sell high and buy low, passive investing is a good alternative. Um, you just need to recognize that um, you are now passenger on a plane that is driven by the sentiment of others and that, um, you know, markets may go up over time, but you are subject to the mood swings of the crowd along the way. And again, be careful not to meddle because you will meddle based on what your gut says and successful investing requires you to do exactly the opposite of what your gut tells you to do. Yes. And I think an under talks about risk of listening to your gut and meddling is when you sell at the top, you actually make the right decision to sell at the top and then the stock market goes down, but then you don't buy back in and you don't buy back in for many years and you miss out on all those gains. Yeah. So for example, if you have someone sold at the exact top, probably in November of 2021, they would have felt like a genius because the market, you know, went down, you know, a little over twenty percent until October. But now we're three percent from those all-time highs. And I actually think if you've been dollar-cost averaging, you actually would have made money. Uh, uh, yeah. And also, you get paid the, the dividends. So, uh, is it is is studying the sort of behavioral fallacies? Do you, do you come to the conclusion that really the market goes up uh, over time, and that the, gr the greatest failure is people being too bearish in the long run? I, I think it's people being too bearish in the long run, being too bullish in the long run, making decisions at extremes in sentiment. Um, if, if you're going to invest for long periods of time, put it in and leave it alone. And, and don't, you know, don't listen to financial television. Don't listen to, you know, things on Twitter or, or videos. Turn this off. Except um, for us. Well, no, I, I, to, I think in all of these. Yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if, if, if your objective is retirement and you're 20 years old, you know, just put it away and, and come back to it in 50 years and let's see what you've got. Um, but I think that we are in such, we become so impulsive at extremes in sentiment that we undo the good plans that we have. And, and I often tell investors, write yourself a letter, you know, the you, the letter you would write to you when the market is down 25, 30, 50%, what, what's the message you want to send to you? Um, so that you, you can remember what it was you were instructing yourself to do. Um, and the same thing, you know, when the markets have gone, Haywire and, and everything you're listening to is is talking about unicorns and rainbows ahead. Peter, just scanning the investment universe. So anything in stocks, anything in bonds, private equity, stocks all around the world. What really stands out to you as an extreme in sentiment right now? And I'll give you an example. You can definitely please uh, pick something else. But for example, right now, people are you know, pretty bullish on Japanese stocks and very bearish on on Chinese stocks. Uh, that's just to give an example. So what in, in the entire investment universe are, really stands out to you as an extreme in sentiment? Oh, I, I think um, 
there are things in the commodities market. Um, natural gas is a place where um, I'm seeing incredible complacency, a sense of enormous abundance, which in the commodity space means lows in price. Um, yeah, I would agree with you in the in the this interesting split in in China and, and Japan. Um, you know, one of the things I'm a big believer in, Jack, is um, what I call confidence diversification. Um, I think investors should go out of their way to buy things that are hated, um, to and to have in their portfolio what I come to think of as a mix of moods. You know, what, what creates successful diversification isn't historical correlation. It's that investors feel good about things, they feel bad about things, and those emotions are ch constantly changing. And so I think as an investor, you want to deliberately find things that people just think are disgusting or useless or burning up, you know, you're, you're lighting money on fire. Um, and, you know, keep that along with the things that are being loved and overloved. But that experience helps you to see that sentiment ebbs and flows. Things do not always go up forever. They don't always go down forever. Um, and you're, you, you learn a lot by buying things that are falling in price, that are rising in price um, about how the crowd behaves and ultimately what, what accompanies lows in mood and highs in mood. So I, 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 you know, rather than trying to identify specifics, I, I would just say, go out of your way to look at things that just were, just look horrible. Mm -hmm. So what looks horrible right now, other than, I guess, natural gas and maybe Chinese stocks? Um, you know, some would say that the, the regional banks have looked really bad. Um, we'll, we'll see. I mean, they, they certainly looked horrible back in March. Um, that, that to me would have been a time to be, be excited because everybody's, you know, laughing at just, you know, what, what's going to be the next bank that fails, um, that sort of strident extrapolation. Um, you know, one of, one of the challenges right now is that there's, there's not a lot that's, that looks incredibly horrible. Um, and, and, the markets investors are very good these days at picking out things that were taken for dead and and resurrecting them like Lazarus. I mean, you look at a company like uh, Carvana um, that you know suddenly everybody hated it, and then boom, it it attracted a lot of attention from the crowd. Yeah, with with regional banks, I mean, the, the change in sentiment has been quite extreme. I'd like to ask you. Do you think there is a positive feedback loop? In other words, uh, don't be a contrarian. Actually, you know, trend following actually works in the regional banks uh, being a, a sort of a um, self-fulfilling prophecy in the following way. If a bank stock falls from $100 a share to $2 a share, depositors get really worried and they withdraw their money, especially in this time where you know everyone's a, a bank analyst on, on Twitter. And then that can itself fee, you know, uh, deteriorate the, the business model. In other words... Uh, you know, if, it's, if it goes to two dollars, like it could probably go to zero, as happened with the uh, Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic. So I, I think of banks as um, an extraordinary leveraged bet on sentiment. Um, they're they're accordions, and having been a bank, bank treasurer, I've witnessed this firsthand, where everything in a bank goes well when confidence is high from asset quality to risk management to the price at which you're issuing bonds to the value of your equity. And when confidence falls, it all turns in the other direction. And so you see these compressions and expansions um, and they're a measure like book to value is a, is a good one where you start to see people valuing stocks at less than book value, bank stocks at less than book value. When sentiment changes, suddenly you see this accordion effect moving in the other direction because you know, the idea of getting 50 cents in the dollar suddenly becomes, oh no, we're going to get it all back. And um, you, you saw that to a, an extent earlier this week with Schwab, um, where 
the crowd suddenly concluded that the worst is behind it. And 12% later, that the stock is you know, re now reflecting that. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, you the, created the phrase K-shaped recovery to describe the bifurcated nature of the economic recovery in uh, you know, 2020. Tell us about what motivated you to create that phrase, that phenomenon. And since you created that phrase in 2020, how has that phenomenon absolved? What are your th thoughts? Yeah, so the, the basis of the K-shaped recovery wasn't economic. It was all about the relative confidence that I saw. In fact, I wrote a piece in March 2020 called The Work From Home Confidence Divide, which is a real mouthful. K-shaped recovery is, is a clear image for people. But what I was trying to say was, for white most white collar workers, their confidence quickly jumped. They were able to work from home. They pivoted. They could have food delivered in many cases, things delivered to home. Um, they were the early recipients of benefits of monetary and fiscal policy. So, so those at the top were quickly recovering. Meanwhile, nurses and truck drivers and supermarket workers and folks that were, you know, feeding us, their lives didn't change. In fact, in many cases, their lives got considerably worse during the pandemic. And so what I was trying to capture was this two-tiered nature of the U.S. economy that would develop based on the relative confidence that I observed. So let's fast forward to today. I think confidence for those at the top has skyrocketed. Um, and, I, and I see that in, in measures like Louis Vuitton stock. You know, this is a company that sells luxury, you know, pocketbooks and wine and, and fancy luxury products. It's the most valued stock in Europe today. In fact, four of the 10 biggest stocks in Europe by market cap are luxury goods makers. So those at the very top are doing extraordinarily well based on what investors are saying about these companies. And that's a complete disconnect from what I observe in terms of the sentiment on Main Street, where people still feel a high level of powerlessness and uncertainty. And so I worry about this divide. Um, and I worry about what we've seen in France, where you have you know, Louis Vuitton at record highs and people protesting in the streets. And we need to be cognizant of this, this societal disconnect from the markets, because if this divide continues to widen, hopelessness is going to set in on the part of those at the bottom, that they're, they're going to feel like they can never achieve the economic means to be successful, you know, afford a down payment on a house, afford the, the, the lifestyle that they aspire to. So I, I, I worry about this deeply. And I, and I think that underconfidence today is probably America's greatest threat, that people feel more uncertain and more powerless than the, certainly the economic data would suggest is warranted. And, and I would say just overall quality of life suggests it's warranted. The uh, post-great financial crisis era of ultra-low interest rates and 
did uh, low inflation and lots of financialization uh, really exacerbated uh, wealth inequality, economic inequality, the K-shapedness uh, uh, that you were just referring to. Do you think that the you know if we are in a new era, uh, what we're experiencing right now of much higher interest rates, uh, higher inflation, and uh, increased w- wage gains, uh, wage growth, do you think that will be better for uh, st- stability and cohesion and, and inequality? No, because the the inflation effects hit before the wage effects. So wage increases are a lagging indicator when it comes to inflation. And so the, the risk is that higher prices create greater anxiety before they are resolved through higher, you know, higher salaries and compensation. I, I also worry about that um, you, you also have elements of scarcity and feelings of scarcity that come with this. Um, and so that's, that's also an issue. And, and finally, I think we don't appreciate the, the, the credit divide. For those at the top, higher interest rates are largely a benefit. You know, they, they, are, they are earning money on their money. But it is a real impediment to those at the bottom. And we've, we've seen that, you know, if you, if you look at the cost of a new car for somebody who's borrowing today versus two years ago, you, you can see that, that just, how, just how pernicious th- that inflationary price is. So um, I, w- I, w- I wish that wage gains would get ahead of inflation, but that's never going to happen. Companies will wait to see that they need to raise wages um, and that will be well after um, the psychological impact has hit those at the bottom. What about the very low unemployment rate, which on the margin gives uh, workers more leverage over their employers than when the unemployment rate is very high and you know, uh, employer, employers can really you know, kind of pick whoever they want? So again, this is, this is something that I think we, we over-exaggerate that benefit because it benefits those who are at the top, who can afford to move, who have skills and abilities that those at the bottom don't have. And and I think you're seeing that disparity in the form of the the increased unionization efforts of those at the bottom, the strikes and the the work stoppages and the demands for higher wages, um, because those at the bottom feel that they, they are, while they're all employed, they are not getting nearly the benefits that they believe they deserve. And for many of them, they have been behind since COVID hit. Um, you know, we celebrated them for about three months um, with bonuses and the like, and then things went back to bad. Do you think there's a somewhat of an opposite phenomenon in a narrow way of a lot of the people who were expecting a recession in 2022 were uh, people who were highly paid uh, you know, executives in venture capital, private equity, real estate, uh, finance. I mean, you know, the, the, the finance labor market of getting a job at a big bank, that's not a great labor market, unlike the general labor market, which is much better in America. So do you think there's kind of a bifurcation where uh, you know, high earner people in uh, tech and finance you know, it wasn't a great labor market last year, and you had a lot of, you know, I mean, venture capitalists and uh, you know, private equity people saying, "Oh my God, the economy can't handle three percent interest rates. We're going to go into a recession if we yeah. get three percent." And the reality is, you can't handle three percent interest rates. The economy can. Yeah, I mean, and both of those industries overhired in 2021. I mean, again, you you look at the euphoria in finance and technology um, in early 2021. They they thought it was going to be this amazing, blisteringly bright future ahead in everything. And so the, 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 the spree of investing in new people was extraordinary. And they also told them they could work anywhere in the world. Um, and so they overhired. And then the natural response in both of those industries is to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, and so we, we saw that through last fall. We're still seeing it. Um, you know, Morgan Stanley announcing, you know, sort of a continuation of, of layoffs. And, and so 
I, I, yeah, there, there's the the robustness in the economy is is a function of what what is in what do we have demand for, um, and certainly there's lots of demand for folks at the at the bottom, um, you know where particularly where immigration once filled a void and does not today, um, things like AI, but there are other places where. The, the bloom has certainly come off the rose. And so based on everything we talked about, about people's economic expectations uh, you know, in, in every cohort, how does that inform your economic view of, will we have a recession? Will we have a soft landing? Will it be in 2024? I mean, what everything we've been talking about, can you kind of piece it together to, to frame how you're thinking about uh, the, the economy going forward? I, I think we're likely to have a tech session that we'll see a, a material slowdown in technology, just given the the enthusiasm that we see, particularly at, within big tech. I think we're going to have a rich session where those at the top pull back because there are things that that suggest to me, as you know, I mentioned LVMH, but there there's a lot that I see on the extreme high end that suggests a lot of overbuilding over capacity um, in in all aspects of the the entourage of the of the extreme wealthy um, and I think for those at the bottom the question becomes how quickly does the change in sentiment in what have been two big drivers of this economy the service industry and the tech industry how quickly does that flow through to to the economy more broadly um, and here's where you know, the market impacts become important. Um, if we see an exogenous event and you start to see a response in the commodity market, that then the, the impact is going to be very high to those at the bottom very quickly. So you think in, to some degree, the, the uh, K-shaped recovery, that bifurcation could get a little bit better? Yeah, I, I, I think it's reached a point where... Um, yeah, there, there's almost like alligator jaws. Something, something's going to cause this to close. Got it. What would you say is the psychology of the Federal Reserve? Are they in the passenger seat, the comfort zone, the stress center, or the, the launch pad? How would you assess their level of control and their level of certainty? Um, I think of the Fed as a crowd-following organization. Um, and that's true of all bureaucratic bodies, um, not, just, not just the Fed. Uh, they watch and respond and try to mirror their actions to what they think the crowd is looking for. They will all deny that and use language like data, you know, we're data driven, we're, you know, but when you look at their, you know, look at Fed funds hikes relative to the T-bill market, it becomes pretty clear that they're, they, they follow. Um, and, and we should expect that of, of, Big institutions, they they can't move nearly as quickly as the crowd, particularly today. And I and I don't think we have policymakers who appreciate the speed at which the crowd can move, and the degree to which changes in sentiment are now translating into changes in behavior. Um, I, I think this spring should have been a far greater wake up call for the financial system than it was. You know that you can. Um, between social media, the, the the mainstream media, and whether it's online trading or online banking, we can our mo- our emotions are now moving to action like never before. And I've, I've a bit of a financial historian, and I'd like to go back to the Panic of eighteen fifty seven. Why? Because it was a panic that was far faster than any panic before it. The last, the prior panic was in the 1820s and it was, it took weeks, months to play out. The panic of 1857 took days, maybe weeks. And what was the difference? The telegraph. The earlier one, news traveled by mail, news traveled by telegraph. And if you look at the advancements in technology, telephone, radio, television, the internet, now social media, the speed at which the message moves and the breadth to whom the message moves is like never before. 
And so you pair that with 24-hour trading and, and online banking, we can move money faster than people realize there's a problem. I, I joke now that if there's a line outside of a bank, the problem is done. I mean, that that's 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 now a lagging indicator where in the past it was a leading indicator because the money's the money that's going to move has already moved. And and I don't think investors and certainly policymakers appreciate what this means from a risk management standpoint. You know, how do you how do you capitalize a bank adequately with that kind of behavioral behavioral trait present? Where, where you can drain a bank as they did with Silicon Valley in the span of 24 hours. Um, we, we need to rethink that. And same thing with the circuit breakers and the, the market liquidity overall. And I just I would just tell investors, size your positions, realizing that things will move much faster than you ever imagined. So do you think that another failure of a substantial bank is an underappreciated risk in the market? Yeah, and I and I think a, a a market closing panic is a much greater risk than is thought to be the case today. And I'm not yeah. I'm not trying to be. Yeah. Um, I mean, we we saw the other side of this during the meme stock mania, where you could take anything and make it go up fifty, a hundred, three hundred percent. So so we 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 can we've seen both both ends of this play out. Peter, how do you assess the exceptionally dire calls about the commercial real estate uh, industry, particularly offices, where you know, as, as you, we referenced earlier, a lot of people are more working for home. So you know, some of these office buildings are being sold at distressed prices, and it's a thing where the, the fundamentals don't look great, to put it mildly. But at the same time, it's so well advertised, and so many people are talking about it that. You know, based on your sentiment framework, it's, you'd actually say, hey, actually, maybe people are too worried about this. What do, what do you think? So I look at all of this language and say, is it fully reflected in price? And my response is no. If this is as bad as people are saying it is, I don't see that in prices at all yet. Do I see it in isolation? Yeah. The, the you know Those things that are trading from from you know, seller to buyer, yes. But I don't see a a broad awareness that has translated to widespread pricing to reflect the kind of dire prognostic forecasts that are being being put out there. What about the general principle of when everyone's freaked out about something, fade it and go the other way? I when I look at freaked out, I want to see that behaviorally. I, I want to see that in headlines. I want to see that in news stories. I want to see that in market and turmoil specials. I want to see that in price. I, I want to see this um, in a way that's palpable and that is both cause and effect, that, that somebody who is late to this is going to feel panicked and the need to sell. That's, that's what I'm looking for when I think about people freaking out. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I certainly don't see that today in, in commercial real estate. I see I see lots of people talking about it, lots of gnashing of teeth and people saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's like it may or it may not, but um, it's certainly not to me at a point where I'm 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 excited because people think the house is on fire. Got it. Before I ask my, my final question, Peter, of course, you're the president of Financial Insights and the adjunct professor of economics at William of Mary. And your book is uh, The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. Everyone has got to check it out and, and read it. We, I'm sure we've only scratched the surface here on, on our conversation. Uh, my, my final question would be, if people listening to this wanted to improve uh, their own behavior and uh, not be as irrational, or I know you don't like to put it rationally, but but you know, improve their own behavior and not make uh, as as many of the common mistakes. What is the one thing that would be the best advice for them to do? It would be to don't act, not to react to what you're watching and listening to. That doing nothing is often far better than doing something when you feel that you must in the markets. Um, there are no musts in the markets. 
and you're you're much better to draw a line and say, you know what, everybody's saying sell. This is not the time to do that. That time has passed. And the same thing with with buying. Um, I think in that inaction is probably the best thing investors can do. Thank you. Of course, people could follow you on Twitter at Peter underscore Atwater. I know I said that was my final question, but but a quick thing. How manic, how bullish, just what do you say this market is? Uh, you know, from a reading of, of zero, which is extreme bearishness, you know, March 2009 and 100 is February 2021. Where are we right now? In other words, Jack Bogle, a fa- you know, pioneer of, of passive investing who said never sell, that's the trick. He, he said he personally... Uh, in you know, around 2000 or 1999, sold a lot of stocks and bought bonds. Uh, so that was for him. That was a reading of 100 of extreme bullishness. Uh, where are you on that bullish reading? Uh, for 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 stocks, I'm probably yeah. in the in the 85 to 90. Um, okay. Particularly given the the enormous runs that we've seen in the the heavy market cap stocks. Um, you know, the, the identification of a magnificent seven says a lot about sentiment. And that would suggest that sentiment is extreme, just the, the adjectives that we use. Um, I would be careful in terms of the Jack Bogle trade of, of moving from stocks to bonds. Again, stocks and bonds were intensely loved at the same time. And we need to be careful to presume that correlations, historical correlations hold in the wake of something like that. Um, If you're going to get out of the market, get out of the market. Um, And you're being paid quite a reasonable return today to to be out of the market in terms of what you can earn in cash um, versus bonds. But I I would be be very careful in terms of sort of presuming that if stocks go down, bonds go up. Yes. And Jack Bogle would have been the first to advise people do not do that. That was an individual uh, asset allocation thing. So 85 to 90 on a scale of 100, that's the market's pretty hyped up in in your view. It is. It is. I I think we've come an enormous way since the fall. There we go. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.